Uh, we've had a little Advent series uh, these last three weeks. I'm going to conclude it today. We've really been focusing in on uh, portions of Scripture from Isaiah's prophecy, from Isaiah 7 through to Isaiah 9, with a particular focus on Isaiah uh, chapter 9. Advent uh, means the arrival of the presence uh, of someone. And we're thinking of Advent season of the arrival of the one that most people in our world would recognize that there's something about the arrival of the one they know as Jesus at this time of the year. For us, we're looking back, but we're also looking forward all the time because the whole sense of Advent is that he is coming back. And that's the reality for those of us that know the Lord Jesus as Savior. He is coming back for us. So Advent and this time of year, we can use for ourselves and for our benefit as we consider the one who has come for us and by the one who is coming for us. And where I'd like us to finish with today is the future aspect of this, that the Lord is coming for us and what that means uh, for us. Let's take our reading from Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll say something about it again. So Isaiah chapter 9, if you can find your way there. And we'll read the first seven verses together. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So over our last uh, two weeks, just very quickly in summary, we considered the darkness and distress and despair that the people at the time these prophecies were given in Isaiah's time, 740 BC or somewhere around that, with King Ahaz, a wicked king on the throne of Judah, the darkness, distress and despair that they felt and knew in their experience. But then this prophecy comes that uh, the child will come, that the virgin will be with child. We'll call his name Emmanuel, for God is with us. That's in Isaiah 7. And then we come to Isaiah 9. And we get a fuller understanding of what this means as the fulfillment sees into the future its biggest fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Into the darkness of their setting will come the light that shines. And we considered the light, the life, the laughter and the liberty that's expressed in the earlier verses here of, uh, of chapter 9. Then last week we were considering verses... Um, Three and four and five in particular, with uh, then finishing up with verse six, considering the name of the child given, the child born, the son given, 
wonderful counsellor, the mighty God, the eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. And how the expression of who he is in those names, those titles of his name, um, meet the needs of every human being for all of us. He comes with a wisdom that's above and beyond the, the human wisdom, which can only get us so far. He comes with the power that is above and beyond anything of humanity, which again can only achieve so much. He comes then with that protection of security that he brings, that no human being can find for themselves or can give to others. And the peace that the world is longing for and for people themselves are longing for in their own experience. Only he is the one to meet all of that. And his name, as it's described here, gives that to us. What I want us to focus on today, then, is verses 7. It's verse 7. It's the unshakable hope for every believer, those into whom the light of God has shone into the darkness of their experience, and they have embraced, then, the understanding that God has given to bring them to salvation. That's the way salvation works. He comes to our mind and our hearts then respond in love. So light comes into darkness. The unshakable hope for every believer who knows that. And the believers then who know that their, their need for everything is met in the saviour that God has provided. The, the child who is born to us. The son that is given. The hope that they have in him. Which is here expressed in this eternal kingdom that is spoken of. The kingdom that will have no end. And he being the one who will sit on the throne and the glory of all of that. So we're looking forward to the eternal kingdom, the eternal rule and reign of our God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's how he's described by Paul and Titus. He's our God and Savior, Christ Jesus, the one who existed, Christ, from all of eternity. Jesus, who took on humanity. He is our God and our Savior, and he will sit on the throne forever. Notice in verse 6, though, before we get into verse 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Notice it's the child that's born, it's not the son that's born. Just a little thing in passing. The child is born because the eternal son who is given steps into humanity. Because of his coming into humanity then, it says, the government will rest on his shoulders. God is sovereign over everything, let's never forget that. As the great creator of all things, and we were captivated by that in the remembrance this morning, as the one who sits over everything and demonstrates the infinity of who he is in all of his attributes, he sits over everything. But so that it might be recognized by men properly, he would come into humanity. And that's the grace and humility of our God. As sinners, God will destroy sinners they cannot stand in his holy presence but for God to have those who are his by his choice who will come with love and praise and look forward to and enjoy the kingdom that he is sitting over and will do forever he had to come into humanity that's an amazing thing for us to remember that God became flesh so that the kingdom the government might rest on his shoulders Notice the contrast, I think, with what's there in uh, verse 4. It says, you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The staff on their shoulders is somebody beating someone over the shoulders with something because they're under the slavery of something. God is the one to step in to 
break us out of that slavery to sin, which is our experience, and to break that which is upon the shoulders. And how is it done? It's done through the one upon whom the government will rest forever. Now we know that the one on whom the government will rest, as John, 17, John 19 verse 17 says, they took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull and there they crucified him. On the shoulder of the incarnate son of God, he took out the sign of the curse, the curse of sin. Galatians 3 and 13, there Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And here's the one on whom the government will rest on his shoulders, the strength, that's the image there of this one. That the government of God forever will be upon him, and he will be the one to uphold it. He carried through the streets of Jerusalem a wooden cross, or part of it. And couldn't bear the weight of it and had to have somebody else come as pressed by the, the Roman guards to come and help him carry the cross. Amazing humility. And that God would come into humanity first. So that we might recognize the rule and reign of Christ and of God. And throne him in our lives and look forward to his rule into eternity. Not only did he step into humanity but in his humanity he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that was laid on his shoulders as he went out to Calvary. It tells us here that of that government which shall rest on his shoulders, it says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace in verse 7. The glory of the rule and the reign of the Saviour that we know, our God and Saviour Christ Jesus, will never end. That's the hope of Scripture. Now, maybe because I was sensitive to this this morning, I thought all of the hymns that we were singing in the remembrance had, had a taste of that, a looking forward to this eternal hope that is ours, that Christ will rule and reign forever, and we will reign with him. That's the promise of God's word. There's going to be a revelation, you know, of his glory for eternity. I don't know about you, but maybe uh, I've heard it said that some are a little concerned that maybe what we have to look forward to in eternity isn't actually going to be as good as what we enjoy now. And maybe we need to be honest with ourselves in that as well. Because maybe we've um, configured a, a caricature of what the future might be that will constantly be singing praise to God. We should do that, of course, for who he is. But uh, some people consider that to be much less than the enjoyment of this life. But that's not the sense that we get from Scripture about the future rule and reign of Christ Jesus when he sits over all. And that day there will be no sin. And we'll be released from it. Um, we're going to get into this in a little bit more in a moment. Eternity is a difficult thing to understand, but the future day seems to have time in it as well. Because the language that's used speaks of month and month and week and week and so on. And I believe there's a restoration of that which God had set in motion back in Eden with a man and a woman invested with all of the authority that God gave them to work and to enjoy God as they did it and to glorify God as they did it. Sin came in and spoiled that. So I imagine that in the restored day there's going to be this fulfillment through activity as we with renewed bodies, not renewed bodies, new bodies as we're told, glorified bodies like the bodies of the Lord Jesus that are fit for eternal glory will exist in a form of time that's in eternity, in which 
God will reveal the glory of who he is in Christ Jesus to us forever. Now, that grips my heart. And I'm at the point almost of saying, for to me to live as Christ, to die is gain. It's a joy. Did you notice in Ephesians 2, verses 6 and 7, where it speaks of us being saved by grace, it also says that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus with a purpose, so that in the ages to come, so there is time, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus, grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God, in his work to transform us from being sinners, separated and hostile from him, brought into this wonderful relationship with him now, out of darkness into light, death to life, and all the blessings freed from slavery and so on. He views us as being seated with our Savior, the one who is on the throne, whose rule and reign on earth will one day be fully acknowledged. He sees us as there with him, with the purpose that in the ages to come, he will show us and declare to us the grace of his kindness in Christ Jesus. Now that's infinite. And it's for that reason eternity is as long as it is because we'll be searching it out. Government to me speaks of a world order that's maybe not dissimilar to, to what we see today. It's interesting that the prophecy here given by Isaiah speaks of government. So there is rule over the nations and it's God's rule. Just as a little aside, you, you know that the verses that Paul speaks of in Romans tell us that we're to be subject to the rulers and authorities because God is over them all. Now, that's difficult for us when we see wicked uh, rulers in our nations and the things that they do. But God is sovereign over it. But a time is coming when all of that will be moved and Christ will be the one who reigns. Revelation 21 and 22 take us into uh, an understanding along with other scriptures of what the future kingdom rule and reign of Christ is going to look like into eternity. You know, Isaiah is the first and the only of the prophets in the Old Testament days before Christ came that was given the grand insight into what is coming. New heavens and a new earth. You go to the end of Isaiah yourselves if you have opportunity in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 62 and he's the one who brings into uh, Old Testament scripture, this promise of God that there's something new coming. And it's picked up there in Revelation 21 and 22 as the Lord reveals it to John <clears throat> as he's given an insight into what is coming. And he says, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. It's interesting that's how Isaiah's whole prophecy finishes. There's no accident to that at all because God is over it all and he's sovereign in the writing even and the organization of that which is given in his word and the promise is there of a new heavens and a new earth before that comes Christ will reign on earth for a thousand years we have that promise and again it's Isaiah that tells us that just to very quickly give us the timeline of what is happening we know that the advent of the Lord that we're looking forward to is is imminent it was imminent when he was with his disciples and he said, I'm coming back soon. And after he'd gone, he says, we'll return soon. It's imminent. It's always imminent. <clears throat> but when he comes, he will gather those 
of the church, the body of Christ, as they describe those who through faith and by the grace of God have come to receive the Lord Jesus as their saviour. They will be taken up, whether alive or dead, to be with the Lord. <clears throat> that then sets in motion something which is spoken about a lot in Isaiah here. Uh, I, uh, Israel comes back into God's purposes and that nation then becomes a focal point for everything on earth. And you have a period of tribulation, which is for the Jews. Great tribulation, seven years. The arrival of one who is the Antichrist and very difficult days on earth. Eventually, then, the Lord will come back to the earth, the Son of Man. He comes back in judgment. And I believe we will be with him because that's what the scriptures say. We will come with him and he will wipe away that <clears throat> and judge that which is said against him and he will set up and 1,000 year reign on earth. Go off and do, um, do the study of it yourselves. It's there mentioned in Revelation, the earlier chapters of Revelation 20 and, and earlier. But you have it spoken of so often in Isaiah. Because Isaiah's focus was for the people of Israel. And he sees this 1,000 year reign, this time of Christ, the promised child, the child born, the son given, reigning from Jerusalem over the nations of the earth it will happen and we'll be with him at the end of that period then there will be um, another uprising as Satan who has been bound for a thousand years as Revelation tells us he's released to try one last attempt to overthrow this great one on whom the government rests on his shoulders and the word is enough to deal with him and forever he's sent to the lake of fire now that same portion in Revelation tells us that that's the same fate for those who reject the one on whom the government will rest. They share the same fate. But then we move into the eternal day of God with what is described in a few words in Revelation 21 and 22. I saw a new heavens and a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth. Just a little interesting one. How long does it take for that new heaven and new earth to be created it's a big thing of debate about early chapters of Genesis. How long was it for the, what we see around us to be created? Just in similar language in Revelation 21 and 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It'll all be created wonderful. Notice verse 7 tells us that this one, the child born, the son given, will, um, he will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom. This is God fulfilling his promises. God always fulfills his promises and my encouragement to all of us is to remember that if God says something, he always delivers. And this is it. Listen to this, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through the 16, just a few of the verses there. He says to David, who had this love for God, he was described as a man after God's own heart. God said that about him, he's after my heart. And because he was after God's heart, he was, he was after the things of God and he was after the the things of God's people and he was after the things of God's worship and particularly in the matter of the building of a, of a house for him. And after David had expressed that, God made a covenant with David and his descendants and said this, when your days, David, are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Its immediate fulfillment was in Solomon, the one to build the house. But it speaks of his throne and his kingdom being established forever. So the promise was there. He goes on to say, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne 
shall be established forever. Here's a man who is after God's own heart. And the promise comes to him that the throne will last forever. It's not in the succession of kings, <clears throat> though it was for the, the period of Israel's history until Israel and Judah were, were taken off into captivity. It was for that period of time. But he was looking forward to the Christ. Listen to these verses we love at this time of year. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. And he was a descendant of David in Joseph's line. Even though Joseph was not his father, stepfather, of course, stepped in to, to take over um, the responsibility as God had given him. You then follow the, um, the genealogy that we have in Luke, and it follows a different line uh, down through Mary's line. And again, it traces its way back up through David. God overseeing everything so that the one to be born would be a son of David human terms Romans 1 verse 3 Paul says this about concerning his son Jesus who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who was declared the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead Jesus our Lord Luke 1 the words that were spoken by the angel you shall call his name Jesus he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. There's humility in this, that God would step into humanity to be accounted as the son of David, but he is declared to be the son of God through his resurrection from the dead. We rejoice in that. The humility of our God and his exaltation. Christ is on the throne. The government is resting on his shoulders but the full evidence of that will be seen in the millennial kingdom, those thousand year reign, but on into the eternal day when God will be with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. It's remarkable, enjoyable stuff. It says in verse 7 as well that he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. We're looking for justice. There's a lot of injustice in our world. We're told in Romans chapter 12, I think it is, not to take vengeance into our own hands, but leave that with God. Justice will be done if things come against us, which um, we struggle with. He will uphold it. He will establish it and uphold it. That's what God the Son does, isn't it? He spoke the universe as we know it into existence and he upholds it by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1. He's the one through whom salvation will come to us and because he lives, he upholds our salvation forever. It's in him that we are justified because he lives. I can face tomorrow as the old hymn says. He upholds because he has established. And that which Christ has brought to us in the matter of salvation, it's established and he will uphold it because it's in him. And God, his promises find their yes in him with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, never going to end how does that make you feel just answer that question honestly yourself because my challenge as it was to me is this matter of do I live for this life more than I live for the life that's to come I give them eternal life For the words of the Lord Jesus this is eternal life that they may know you and the one you have sent that's the definition according to God the Son as to what eternal life is. 
an increasing awareness and knowledge of who God is. And we were taken there this morning in the remembrance again, captivated by the reminder that it's all about God and we are privileged to be brought into his purposes, but it's all for his glory. But this life is not all it is. I know myself, sometimes I live this life as if this is all there is. Maybe because of things that I've badly learned about what the future is to hold. But looking at scripture, I've said again, I think it's this restoration of that perfect um, idyllic setting, if I can use that word, that's there in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall in chapter 3. You have that fulfillment in a man and a woman together, created by God in his image, with the responsibility to care for that which God had given them. They weren't sitting around doing nothing. They were doing something for God and probably were not tired from it at all. But they were told to take a day out and to spend their time thinking about God. The Sabbath was mentioned back then as well, I believe. It's there. God took a rest. Not that he needed a rest. It was so that he would start another work. But you have that wonderful picture, I believe, there. In those early chapters of Genesis of God's ideal um, purpose for humanity. That he is honoured through God-glorifying activity by those whom he has created and set over that which he has created. And that's what you get. I don't have the time to go into it with you, but you go into the latter chapters then of Revelation 21 and 22. And you see references there that go back to Eden. There's a reference to the tree of life and so on. It's there for us. You might say, well, it's metaphor. I think it is, but it's borrowing from that which was there in the beginning. It's there at the end. And God's purposes for humanity, as it sits in eternity, is there between those two. And we sit in the middle of it with the blessing that Christ has come. That that which is coming, which is a restoration of that which was broken, he's come to do that and we rejoice in it today. Now, the challenge to me as it is, is do I then live knowing that that is the fulfillment that God will have me live in for his glory then, which is doing everything without sin because you know the scriptures that say there'll be no more death, no more crying because there'll be no more sin, no more tears. It's all gone. There's nothing there to detract uh, from the enjoyment of God who is with his people. There is nothing there that is set in hostility to God, which we still have even as believers. It's not there. So we step into this fulfilled eternal experience where we have this unfolding of the grace and kindness and glory of God for us forever. So therefore we do what the one on the throne says. And in the perfection of that eternal day, we are entirely fulfilled. The challenge I'm getting to it here is that if God says to me in his word today and the Lord Jesus Christ says to me today you do this he's saying it so that I might live the most fulfilled life that glorifies God and gives me absolute enjoyment because it's a taste of what is to come no wonder Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 3 this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison he says, what we have now might be difficult. And it was for him, 
in terms of physical things, but his focus was on that which was coming. And his living then under the authority of Christ, Christ enthroned in his heart, meant that he was living the life that was fulfilling, joyful, and God-glorifying. It's no different for us. If the one who is going to sit on the throne, the one upon whom the government rests on his shoulders, the one who has borne our sin, he therefore bears the government. He does it now. And the responsibility of the people of God is to honour that. Individually in our choices and decisions and uh, everything that we do, do all for the glory of the Lord. But also together as God's people to do all that he says in his word. And not to do it begrudgingly. And not just to squeeze it into our week because there's other stuff which I enjoy more. And I'm not going to be around for very long to enjoy that. Nothing. Nothing. It's not nothing. It's something. And God has given it to us to enjoy if it's wholesome and so on. It's there for us to enjoy. But that which God has called us to is to live under the authority of his son. And that is the treasure that is laid up, as the Lord said, in heaven. A reward that is there, that is coming. The glory of God. Now, I need to finish up. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Zeal is the word that means passionate commitment. God's passionate commitment was that a child would be born, a son would be given. The eternal son of God would come into humanity for the purpose of bringing light into the darkness, bringing freedom into slavery, all of those contrasts that only he could achieve, as it says in Romans chapter, in Isaiah chapter 9, only he could achieve them. The zeal, the passionate commitment of the Lord of hosts was that he would bring this one in whom we find all satisfaction and joy. And it was the passionate commitment of the Lord of hosts that he would act to ensure that this one is the one who sits on the throne. He sits on the throne and he will sit on the throne in the new heavens and the new earth. What about now? The challenge again is, <clears throat> is he enthroned in our lives? The hymn, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Is that in our black hymn book, by the way? Just, no, it's only in gospel songs. We'll not sing it then. Think about this just in closing. <clears throat> the Lord taught his disciples a yes to pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We can just stop there and spend a long time considering the greatness of God. And we do right to do that. But then he says, your kingdom come. You will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where does that start? When we pray that, are we praying it as a remote thing? We're looking for the kingdom of God to come and to see it around us. I don't think the Lord intended that at all. I think when we pray, as he says, you go and you pray this. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before he moves into uh, an appeal from the person for the things that they need. 
I believe that section of that prayer is us saying, Lord, your kingdom be in my life. Maybe I'm the only one who has prayed that for years as if it's a remote thing. But I'm more and more convinced that it's an, a humbling of the spirit before the one who sits on the throne to say, that which is seen in heaven now in its perfection, may it be seen in my life. And may that be the starting place in my experience for the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, that will extend forever. May that be seen in me. Maybe that's the challenge for all of us. So Advent, December 25th is almost here, the historical date that is associated with the arrival of the Son of God. He's coming back for us. And he's going to take us into something which far exceeds this experience. It's not a mundane and dull thing. It's something glorious. Spend time looking at what it is we will step into in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Fitted for it forever. So that we, we might live that fulfilled life that glorifies God. But we're not to wait until it comes. I believe we're to pray now that it happens in our lives from this moment on. Let's have our prayer.